Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. On each episode, we talk with biographers about their work. I sat down with Pulitzer Prize winner Beverly Gage to talk about her book, G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of an American Century, published by Viking in November 2022. We recorded this interview at the annual Bioconference in New York City on May 20th, 2023. Beverly Gage, thank you so much for sitting down with me and congratulations on winning the Pulitzer Prize. I knew it was going to win. Well, you knew (laughs) I didn't, but uh, I'm pretty thrilled. I mean, it's interesting because the Pulitzer has a kind of public currency that lots of other things don't. And so uh, it's been, you know, lots of excitement, but lots of people showing up from various moments in my previous life to say, congratulations, I heard about this, and and now I want to read your book. (laughs) But why J. Edgar Hoover? Well, it's a good question because Hoover is not someone that I came to because I love him or admire him or many of the reasons that people write biographies. Um, But I thought that he was an important figure um, who was a really good vehicle for telling a, a sort of big story about the 20th century. He was at the FBI for 48 years as its director and had his fingers in everything. Um, so I thought he was ripe for reinterpretation and uh, that he got at a lot of the big political themes that I'm interested in. Well, your first biography, The Day Wall Street Exploded, well, it's not really a biography per se, but It was certainly around the time that J. Edgar Hoover was coming up. Um, How did that book influence this one? That is where I encountered Hoover for the first time as a historical character, right? Like everyone else, I had kind of heard of him and mostly knew him as this kind of villain who did all sorts of terrible things to people um, in the 60s in particular. And what was interesting to me in that book was that I encountered him as a very young man. So he graduated from law school in 1917, the as the U.S. Is, is entering World War I, and the Bolshevik Revolution is taking place. And so I wrote about him in sort of 1919, 1920, when he became the head of this little thing called the Radical Division at the Justice Department. So what was interesting to me initially was Uh, how early on his ideas about communism and radicalism and threats to democracy had formed and how long they lasted and kind of how influential they became. When did you know that you had a biography of J. Edgar Hoover? In other words, you finished this book and then what? I almost immediately went into the Hoover book. I I thought about writing the Hoover book uh, for most of the time, sort of the tail end of of writing the last book. Um, And so, you know, that book came out in early 2009. And in the summer of 2009, I wrote the proposal for the Hoover book um, and, and sold it to a publisher. And so you can do the math that came out in November of 2022. So it was more than a decade Uh, working on that book off and on. But I I knew from the beginning that for Hoover in particular, it was an appealing biographical subject because it just had this incredible sweep to it. I can't imagine having 
admiration for this person at the outset. But after 10 years of research and writing this book, what have you come to admire about this man? It is true that I did not start out because I admired him, uh, but I came to admire him more over the process of working on the book. And I guess I would say a couple of things. One is that as uh, a young man, um, he actually had some real challenges that he responded to by you know, throwing himself into his work through ambition and drive. And he was just this kind of ordinary middle-class kid with a mentally ill father, and he sort of propelled himself forth. Um, so those pieces of the story were interesting. And then I you know, became quite impressed over time with um, his energies and talents for organization and his faith in government service uh, in a certain kind of professional, lifelong, career-oriented government service that, for all of its flaws, had some real integrity to it, too. And he was a big champion of that. So J. Edgar Hoover was never elected to office, yet he worked with eight presidents. How was he able to be appointed by eight consecutive presidents? It's kind of an incredible story, and that's one of the big things that has to be explained about his life. He was appointed under Calvin Coolidge in 1924, and then he just stayed in that same job till the day he died in 1972, which was under Richard Nixon. <laughs> so that meant that he served under four Democrats and four Republicans, and that he lasted this whole period of time when presidents came and went, attorneys general came and went, politicians of all stripes, but Hoover was there. Um, and I think part of the answer is that there weren't a lot of mechanisms to get him out. I mean, they could have asked him to leave. But when he was appointed, you know, nobody was paying much attention to this position. And so uh, a lot of the mechanisms of accountability, the sort of loose term limits that we have now, those didn't exist. But I think more to the point, people have this idea that he stayed in office for so long because presidents were afraid of him. There's some truth to that, particularly in the later years. Say John Kennedy knew that J. Edgar Hoover knew a lot about his sex life, for sure. And you know that's part of the equation. But uh, Hoover was incredibly useful to all of them. And they, uh, you know, made use of him, particularly Johnson and Nixon in his later years, but even FDR early on, someone we think of as not being necessarily kind of sympathetic to J. Edgar Hoover's conservative worldview. Um, he really empowered Hoover. He made use of Hoover. He thought Hoover was loyal and dependable and, uh, and at the very least useful. These presidents... Several of them, when they had fears or concerns that they didn't want public, you know, darker versions of their personality, they just, you know, put it on Hoover. The term morality comes into play here a little bit and paranoia. Yet Hoover was, you know, he, he had this strict moral code where he ran around telling people that they should send their kids to Sunday school. And there was this like good Christian morality associated with J. Edgar Hoover. So can you tell me about that dichotomy, you know, this stickiness the presidents had with Hoover? Yeah, I think it's one of the really fascinating, um, I would guess, complexities, sometimes contradictions of Hoover's life, that he is a very 
powerful backroom player, right? Sometimes at his own initiative, often at the behest of presidents who are asking him to do sometimes pretty outrageous things, and, right? And to be clear, he's leading the horse to water. Oh, absolutely. He's generally happy to do it. Every once in a while, he says no. But generally, when the president comes and says, I need information about this person, I need you to watch this organization, uh, Hoover was pretty happy to do it. You know, the, the biggest example of that uh, to me, is the moment that Lyndon Johnson asks the FBI um, to conduct surveillance of the Democratic National Convention and particularly of civil rights activists at the Democratic National Convention in 1964, uh, which is a purely political move. It's about providing him with political intelligence, right? And Hoover was generally pretty willing to do that sort of thing um, and to find out lots of things about people's sex lives, their alcoholism, their, you know, nefarious goings on. And at the same time, publicly, he was this kind of upright cultural figure, uh, not only around things that you think that an FBI director would talk about, espionage, right? Uh, other national security matters, but also about uh, all sorts of kind of high morality. He was a very outspoken uh, advocate, as you said, of Sunday school Christianity. He liked to lecture parents about how to raise their children. This, of course, you know, a man who was not married, who had no children, whose own closest companion was the number two guy at the FBI, who was really his, his life partner. And uh, so, yeah, he's full of contradictions. Sometimes I've gotten the question as I've read this book, was Hoover passing? Was he black? I looked for evidence of this. This was a long-standing rumor during his lifetime. Uh, he grew up in Washington, D.C., which was certainly a multiracial city. Um, there were black Hoovers in Washington. Um, but I spent uh, a lot of time trying to trace his genealogy in one way or another. And as far as I could find, if you went back several generations, it sort of begins to trail off. And so maybe, you know, there was a Black ancestor there. But uh, the easy answer is is no. Uh, it doesn't seem to be the case as far as the documented record would suggest. Was he a Ku Klux Klan card-holding member? He was not at all a member of the Klan. So he was part of a fraternity called Kappa Alpha when he was in college, which was, uh, you know, a pretty avowedly segregationist fraternity, a fraternity that existed to, to carry on the traditions of the white South. Um, and that itself had a sort of messy early history with the with the Civil War era Klan. But, you know, Hoover was actually a pretty... Um, determined foe of the Klan itself as an organization. So beginning in the 20s, but even in the 1960s, at the moment that he's going after major civil rights figures like Martin Luther King, he is also going after the Klan. And he didn't like the Klan, not because uh, he opposed its views on race necessarily, but because they were vigilantes, they defied federal power, they used violence, all of these things that he, as a, as a law enforcement figure, didn't condone. So it's one thing to write a biography cradle to grave, and it's another to write a plot-driven narrative about someone. How were you able to create such a page-turner? And I don't mean that to, you know, toot your horn necessarily or unnecessarily, but from the first page, you pull the audience in, or in this case, me, you pulled me right in. 
And to the final page, I mean, sometimes I skim books because I read a lot of books, but this I could not put down. How do you do that? Like, what's your strategy in terms of plot and structure? Well, first, that's great to hear because I wasn't <laughs> sure over time as I was uh, as I was writing the book, you know, whether it would it would have that kind of pull. But I myself was really kind of fascinated from from beginning to end, and I think that that's hopefully some of the energy that's there on the page. You know, I think with Hoover, part of the advantage of writing about him is that people have this kind of fixed villain image of him from the end of his life, right? That's the Hoover that we tend to know, uh, the 60s Hoover, the old man Hoover. And so part of the plot of the book is sort of how did that happen, right? How did he become that figure? Where did his ideas about race come from? Uh, how did his relationship with power change? How did he get that much power? And so uh, I think it had an inherent an, an inherent momentum in, in that sense. And Hoover's also great as a biographical subject because he doesn't have a down period. Right? So a lot of people have very uneven trajectories. There's a period when you're interesting. There's a period when you're not so interesting. Uh, but Hoover had this kind of incredibly sustained story. So I think that that helps too. To your point, he had a really interesting relationship with the press and in particular Hollywood. What was the strategy behind that? Well, ultimately, he really was a master of public relations and put lots and lots of time and energy and taxpayer money right into promoting uh, his own image and the image of the FBI. I think he didn't see that early on, right? It kind of happened to him as much as he made it happen in the 1930s. And he really benefited from you know, for instance, the moment in the 1930s that the Hollywood film codes came in. Uh, prior to that, you had had lots of movies that were glamorizing criminals and where the bad guy was winning and then Hollywood was getting a lot of blowback. So they made a policy that the good guy had to win. And the good guy, as they went looking around, you know, became a figure like J. Edgar Hoover. So uh, he took advantage of the things that came his way. Um, and he was a big believer in the idea, which I don't think he was wrong about, though took to excess, that people don't necessarily understand the work of government. They don't necessarily support the work of government unless you explain it and advertise it and sell it and make it digestible and appealing. And that's at least part of what he thought he was doing with all of those movies and press reports. This book is a is a doorstopper. There must have been things in the book that you had to cut out. What are some of the things that got left on the cutting room floor? Well, it's true. This book was even longer and could have been much, much longer. Um, and so there are pieces that, that ended up on the cutting room floor. Mostly it was details of big, big cases, right? So there are so many kind of iconic moments and gigantic investigations that this book moves through. Uh, where I desperately wanted to do the blow by blow, the setting in the courtroom, right? All of the details of the investigation. And those ended up being uh, very condensed. So that I think is particularly true in the 
big communist investigations of the 40s and 50s, which is material that I really love. Um, in many ways, it's my own deepest interest in the book, um, but I understood it wasn't necessarily everyone else's deepest interest. And so um, going into the details of those cases, uh, there, there's a lot of material that I, that I just left aside. Why is J. Edgar Hoover relevant today? Like, why should we care about him? Well, I think there are several reasons why Hoover matters, um, some of which are directly reflected in our own politics and then others of which are, are sort of absences in our politics today. So the, the kind of conceit of this book is that Hoover represents two political traditions. One is a kind of progressive liberal tradition of government service, career government service, expertise, science, fact-finding, just the facts, ma'am, kind of service to government. And the other is that he was a deep ideological conservative on religion and race and law and order and communism, um, and that he took those two strains and put them together so that he was a, a, a devout conservative who nonetheless operated from within a position of government service. And so those traditions, I think, don't go together very well in our own politics, or there aren't that many people um, who are championing that combination of things. So that, I think, is an interesting piece. Um, of course, the FBI itself is pretty embattled in our own moment. We've seen public opinion changing radically on the question of the FBI over the last few years. You know, when Hoover died, the left and liberals and Democrats basically didn't like him, and Republicans and conservatives tended to champion him and and champion the FBI itself. And now we see almost the, the, the reverse, not entirely. Uh, but the big attacks on the FBI as an institution are coming from the right. They're coming from the Republican Party at the moment. Um, and I think we can see hints of that in this biography. There are lots of moments uh, earlier on uh, where liberals looked to the FBI as a kind of line of defense against figures like Joseph McCarthy. Um, and conversely, where, you know, the groups like uh, the Klan, neo-Nazis, white supremacists uh, uh, really viewed the FBI uh, as their mortal enemy, even during Hoover's years. So uh, I think it can inform some of that politics. And the last thing I'll say is that the dilemmas that the FBI are in right now um, which is to say they're supposed to be apolitical and yet they're being pulled into these kind of very uh, intense political struggles all the time is also something that Hoover knew very well. Uh, he had to negotiate his whole career, sometimes did it better, sometimes worse. Mostly he's a cautionary tale, right? Um, but, uh, but that dilemma would be very, very familiar to him. You've done a ton of research on this book. What was your research process like? Where did you, which archives did you go to? To what extent did you, you know, travel in Hoover's footsteps? Tell me about that process. Well, I did travel in Hoover's footsteps, but that's partly because he didn't really go very many places. He was born in Washington. He died in Washington. He never lived anywhere else. 
And so I did spend a bunch of time in Washington, D.C., uh, both to, to kind of get to know him and his world, but also because that is where most of his papers are. Um, so there are some private papers that are at the National Law Enforcement Museum down there. Most of what we would describe as Hoover's papers are really the FBI. Um, so they're either at the Bureau or at the National Archives. Um, the presidential libraries were super useful. And then I tried to kind of build out from there. There are a lot of pieces of this that are based on, you know, new documents that haven't been seen before through the Freedom of Information Act. But in many ways, the most interesting material to me was actually the public material. So uh, Hoover has a vast collection of press clippings that he kept. They're all at the National Archives. And, uh, you know, they're an incredible resource. They're a public resource. They weren't a secret. Um, but that's a lot of what helped to build his world. To what extent did someone cull his um, personal papers after he passed? Well, to a very dramatic extent, he told his secretary to destroy his personal papers, and she did. Um, so most of what we have that's of a more personal bent is from his childhood or are collections that uh, other people saved along the way. So uh, a young agent in the 1930s named Melvin Purvis um, saved a lot of pretty intimate correspondence that he had, actually quite flirtatious correspondence that he had with Hoover. Um, so we have access to that, but to the degree that Hoover had saved that during his lifetime, his secretary destroyed it upon his death. When you go into the archives, you take notes, you take pictures, you know, you do the things. When you leave the archives, how do you deal with that information? In other words, what's your writing process? Well, in terms of gathering materials, I thought there was such a volume of material here uh, that it had to be digital. So I, I tried not to have gigantic piles of paper. There was some paper, but mostly uh, it was photographing documents and then, and then working off of those photographs. I did not write the book in order. Um, I started with, uh, <laughs> amusingly, I knew it was going to be a long project. So I started with the parts that I thought were least interesting and saved the the parts that I thought would be great for last uh, so that I would be able to get to the stuff that was most animating to me toward the very end. The one exception to that is that there were a couple of chapters that I just really didn't want to write. So those were actually last ones that I wrote. But other than that, uh, that was sort of the pattern. Um, but of course, not writing in order means that when you then go back to do the whole thing, there's there's more of an editing process involved. So you're writing, you're researching, you're teaching, you're doing the things. What did you do for self-care during this time? <laughs> I'm not sure that that was my strong suit during all of this. Um, I did find that uh, I got to know my own patterns very well um, and that uh, open time was really important, right? Not though I was a mother and I had a job and a whole lot of other things to do. Um, finding a way to set up enough open time in a day that it didn't feel crunched, uh, that you could write. And I also started to set extremely small goals for myself. Right? So earlier in my career, I would say I would think if I set the bar really high each day and don't reach it, then at least, you know, I've shot for the moon 2000 words. Right. By the end of this project, I was more like, if I write 250 words, that's great. If I write more, 
even better, but it was a matter of setting myself up for an experience of success rather than an experience of failure each day. And to sustain on a long project like this, it's really necessary to have those, those small victories along the way. That was my conversation with Pulitzer Prize winner Beverly Gage, where we discuss her book G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of an American Century, published by Viking in November 2022. This interview was recorded at BIO's annual conference in New York City on May 20th, 2023. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. Alani Hodge created our theme music, and until next time, thanks so much for listening.